Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 29, The West Returns. To start off today, like most times, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Weston Rayner. Uh, his donation brings us up to, of course, the highest point we've ever had. And really now the Patreon money is starting to make a big difference in my ability to set aside time to do these shows. So again, as always, a huge thank to all, thanks to all of you guys. And uh, yeah, hope to meet some of you sometime. As always, let me know if you're in Sofia. It'd be great to see you. But now to the episode. So last time we ended, just at the moment the Battle of Dyrrhachium was beginning. If you recall, the famous Norman leader Robert Giscard was preparing to land his soldiers, tens of thousands, in the Balkans. The first time I'm aware uh, of a kind of a time when an army like this is invading the peninsula from Italy since Roman times. I mean, in any case, it's been a very long time since we've seen an army come from the west and land in the Balkans to invade, to take territory. So, with the entrance of this new player into the kind of chaotic scene of the Balkans, the question is, what, what does this mean? What's going to happen? Is the West back for good? Are the Normans going to be a significant player in Byzantine politics? Or is the invasion going to end in catastrophe? Well, we'll find out. Now, you'll recall, the last two decades have seen rebellion after rebellion, both from forces that wished to overthrow the Byzantines and Byzantine forces who wanted to take over the empire from within. The Serbs have been increasing their power and their independence. The Pechenings have carved out their own independent little statelet along the Danube with the assistance of that religious sect known as the Paulicians. The Hungarians are consolidating their holdings and uh, are in conflict between the sons of King Geza I. So right now there's a bit of a civil war going on in Hungary, but still... The Hungarians are a far more powerful force than they were when they first arrived on the scene. Now, as of just this kind of moment in our story, they finally have one king, Ladislaus I, who is now ruling both Hungary and Croatia, and he's looking to expand his holdings. So, it's also a possibility that the Hungarians could be a major force in the Balkans. So we've got the Serbs, the Hungarians, and the Croats kind of together. We've got the Normans, all these different forces with the Pechenegs. They're all moving around in the Balkans. They're all looking for opportunities to expand. And so for now, these are the forces at play. And what's clear is that the Byzantines under Alexios Komnenos is, are, are, are sort of in a tough position. They're trying to fight the Normans under uh, Robert Guscard, and they're pretty weak. Their armies have been ravaged by countless uh, internal strifes, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how well they hold them off. So Robert Guscard begins his invasion by landing 30,000 men and about 1,300 of the world-famous Norman knights. These are heavily armored knights, the kind of medieval knights you think about when you think about medieval knights. Now, they're aided by troops sent by Ragusa, which is modern Dubrovnik, a really, really beautiful place. Uh, you know, one of my typical travel recommendations, I've been to, Dubro uh, to Dubrovnik twice. 
it's a, just an incredible place, really worth seeing. Any of you who like uh, Game of Thrones, then Dubrovnik is King's Landing. That's where they film King's Landing. So soldiers from King's Landing, Dubrovnik, are also coming in to help the Normans as they land. The, they begin their invasion by taking over the island of Corfu, which is now part of Greece. It's in the Ionian Sea. Uh, the island surrendered pretty easily. Uh, they then move to establish a better bridgehead on their way to Dyrrhachium, the city. Uh, it's Duras in Albania, but I shouldn't have to say where it is anymore. We've talked about it enough. Um, now, that city, it's important to know for us now, is on a long peninsula, and it's protected by marshes. It's not the case now, if you go to uh, Duras today, but at the time, that's what it looked like. So the Normans, their allies, they move up to Dyrrhachium, and they make their camp outside the city walls, and they prepare for a siege. And in the meantime, a big storm comes in and destroys a number of their ships. But the damage is not fatal. I mean, uh, the, the Normans take a small hit here, but they're still ready for this siege. Now, far away in Constantinople, the emperor is hearing this news. The Normans have invaded. Now, his immediate action is to ask the Venetians for aid. Now, we haven't talked a lot about the Venetians, but at this time, Venice is a rising maritime trade power uh, in the Adriatic Sea and in the Mediterranean more widely. Now, if you're not so good with your geography, it's at the very, very top of the Adriatic Sea. So their trade routes go right past where all these Norman ships uh, are crossing the Adriatic to get to the Balkans. So Venice has a, a really strong uh, interest in play here. They're closely tied in with the Byzantines, their allies. The Venetians are kind of hate the Ragusans, right? They hate all these little trade-based city-states that exist in the Adriatic Sea. And so, yeah, these are kind of the, the lines. So Constantinople starts off by asking the Venetians to help them and promises to give them more trade rights, more beneficial trade rights in exchange for that help. Now, Luckily for Alexios Komnenos, the last thing the Venetians want is for the Normans to dominate the Adriatic and threaten their trade. As I mentioned, if the Normans can control both sides of the mouth of the Adriatic Sea, then they can really prevent the Venetian ships from leaving that area, and they can start to take a big chunk out of Venice's trade. So the Venetians are more than happy to help. So they immediately send a fleet down to attack. So this battle happens between them and the Norman fleet around the Drachium Harbor, and it's not surprising that the Venetians win uh, pretty decisively. They're much better seamen, right? They're much better sailors. They've been doing this for a long time. Just like if you listen to the History of Rome podcast, you'll remember that it took the Romans a little while to quite get used to, to fighting on the sea. It's not something you can just pick up immediately. And so that in com con kind of in combination with their use of Greek fire destroyed most of the Norman fleet. But as with those previous setbacks, Robert and his troops, they don't really care that much. They're pretty okay with this. They're confident in their victory. They know they've got a world-class army and they want to take Dyrrhachium. But what plays out now is a race against time. The question at this point is, can the troops inside the walls of Dyrrhachium wait long enough for that a relief army, some troops to come from Constantinople with the emperor at their head? Well, some help does arrive because a Byzantine fleet makes its way to join the Venetians and they successfully attack the Normans again. But still, that only does so much for those troops trapped inside of Dyrrhachium. 
In the meantime, the Normans, they're not letting up for a moment. Their siege equipment is battering the walls. They're attacking frequently. They're keeping up the pressure. But the garrison inside those walls keeps holding on. But still, it wasn't just the soldiers inside the walls that the Normans had to worry about. Because around this time, a few months into their siege, plague sweeps through their camp and kills about one, about sorry, 10,000 soldiers and about 500 of those knights. Now, remember, at this time in history, a single mounted knight is worth a tremendous amount of money. The armor they wear, the horse, the, the fact that these are generally more noblemen. Losing 500 knights is a big deal, let alone a third of the Norman army, right? So now at this point, the Norman army has been reduced by about a third. Their knights have been reduced by, off the top of my head, maybe 40%. But still, they're determined to take Dyrrhachium. They're not letting these setbacks get to them. So all this means that now, because of these losses due to plague, the two forces facing each other, the Byzantines in the city and the Normans outside, are actually of about equal strength. And a full Byzantine army is marching as quickly as it can in that direction. So you'd imagine at this point that Robert Giscard must be pretty nervous. I mean, things are not looking good for him. But still, he's a determined man. He, he didn't kind of conquer Southern Italy and make such a famous name for himself up to this point by being afraid. So all this leads up to about mid-October, when the emperor and his army finally arrive. So he moves his forces into position to attack the Normans from behind while they're still positioned, laying siege to Dyrrhachium. However, Robert discovers the plot, and he relocates his forces so they can be ready to meet the Byzantines. So, instead of the surprise attack of a besieging force, we end up with the Battle of Dyrrhachium. It ends up as a kind of classic battle, two armies laid out against each other, fighting. So each side lines up, and the battle begins. It starts with the Varangian Guard. They're placed in a line in front of the Byzantine force. Now, you'll remember the Varangian Guard. These are these famous Viking uh, kind of mercenaries who fight for the Byzantines and make up this super elite force that uh, is also the personal bodyguard of the emperor. Now, what's interesting here is that a lot of the Varangians who are fighting on this battlefield actually fled England after William the Conqueror took it over in 1066. Now, if you'll remember your history, William the Conqueror was a Norman. So, they're kind of fighting Normans here. They're fighting the same group of people who took over their homeland. You know, they were Vikings, but they were Vikings in this case who had settled in England in the British Isles. So they'd basically been kicked out of their homeland by Normans. And now here they were thousands of kilometers away in the Balkans fighting who? More Normans. So this battle, this part of the battle had a real personal element to it. You know, this time it's personal. It's a bit of like some action movie where there's a whole big backplot behind why a couple characters really truly despise each other. So now these Varangians have their chance for revenge against these Normans. And behind them, you've got archers. Now those archers are there to harass any attempted attacks by the Normans, to keep the Normans back. So Robert initially begins the battle. He sends in his cavalry for a fake attack. He sends them in and then they turn around and run away. Now, what he's hoping is that he can draw those Varangian guards away from the main force. Because one of the things the Varangians were so famous for was for being 
fierce kind of berserker warriors almost, right? Just having this this tremendous strength and this tremendous intensity. And so he thinks, eh, they're probably not going to be very well disciplined. I'll draw them away from the forest and then I can surround them and destroy them. But it doesn't really work. Uh, it fails and ultimately the archers kind of keep the cavalry at bay and keep them away from the Varangians. The Varangians hold their ground. At this point, the Norman right wing decides to do a full attack. They come in ferociously. They strike at the left part of the Varangians and are repulsed. And then they then kind of flee towards the shore of the sea, uh, or they flee towards the shore. Then Robert's wife, who's a fierce warrior in her own right, kind of gathers them together and rallies them and kind of convinces them not to keep running. And they start to regroup. At the same time, all this is happening. The rest of the Normans are engaging the Byzantine troops and probably being a bit worried because their right flank, okay, yeah, maybe it's regrouping way back where, but it's more or less gone at this point and they're in danger of being outflanked. So the troops that had been rallied by Robert's wife, they're being pursued by the Varangians who are doing their thing. They're swinging their battle axes with this fury that made them so famous and they uh, come in and they attack the Norman armored knights and drive those knights away. But the problem with these warriors is that even with their strength, you can only swing a heavy axe like that for so long. So the Varangians fight extremely well. They fight off those amazing world famous armored knights, but then they get tired. And so when Robert sends a counterattack, the Varangians take heavy casualties and they flee into a nearby church. That church is then burned to the ground with all the Varangians in it. Thus, the cream of the Byzantine army, these soldiers of fortune, who along with their ancestors had come from Scandinavia to England to Constantinople, and finally to this beach on the Adriatic shore, are burned alive in that church. It's a horrendous moment to imagine. No human being ever deserves to die like that. But that's how they go. And so... At this point, the battle started to turn against the Byzantines. Their forces inside of Dyrrhachium are attempting to exit the city and save the situation, but it's all to no avail. Because now, Robert sends his cavalry against the exposed Byzantine center, where the Varangians have more or less collapsed, and he breaks the Byzantine army, who start to run away, uh, and they take his camp in the process. Now, the emperor in all this chaos is separated from his guards, and Alexios himself is badly wounded. But still, he was younger and a stronger man than many of the emperors before him, and he managed to escape with his life, eventually making it to Ohrid. Now, the Byzantines may have seemed to stand a good chance against the Normans, but in fact, the whole battle, even before the Byzantine army collapsed at the end there, the Serbian army, under the commander of Konstantin Bodin, who is the heir of our friend Vojislavovic, was waiting in the wings. They were watching to see what direction the battle would take. He could have intervened at any time. So the combination of the Normans, the Seljuks, the Serbs, all those sort of forces in this battle, it was too much for the Byzantines, and they couldn't hold it together. Dyrrhachium itself managed to hold out actually for a whole other year before finally falling to Robert in February 1082. So, the Byzantines lost the Battle of Dyrrhachium. Dyrrhachium falls to the Normans. The question is, what's their next move? Are they going to move farther inwards to the inland in the Balkans? Are they going to keep conquering? Well, yes. 
Robert then moves into northern Greece. This brings him closer to the major centers of Byzantine wealth and power. And, well, if you want to decide where he's going to go next, it's a bit easier to navigate. Uh, sorry, excuse me. It's a bit easier to navigate in northern Greece than it is to navigate in Macedonia. So when he did this, Robert faced very little resistance. You could imagine Alexios and the Byzantines recently fled the battlefield barely with their lives. And so this didn't exactly inspire a lot of resistance to the Norman conquest. So Robert moves in and wins battle after battle. His army gets to Castoria, a Greek city just south of Lake Ohrid and Lake Prespa. And they're doing very well. But at this moment in Castoria, Robert receives an urgent message from the West. Because you see, the time he had spent away had been very eventful back in Italy. You know, we always have to remember at this time when you're traveling, it takes a very long time to get anywhere and time does not stand still. So he hears this moment to his horror that the Italian regions of Apulia, Calabria, and Campania are in open revolt against his rule. Even worse, the Pope, a key ally of his, is under siege in Rome. The Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV had been paid 360,000 gold pieces by the Byzantines in exchange for an alliance. And at the core of that agreement is the idea that Henry was going to invade Italy in order to divert attention from Robert's invasion of the Balkans. So they did it again. You could hardly ask for a more classic version of Byzantine politics. You just bribe your enemy's enemy to be your friend and attack your enemy from behind while they're attacking you. It's the tactic we've seen them employ against the Bulgarians time and time again. And now it's time for that tactic to come to bear on the Normans. So it's a disaster for them. I mean, things seem to be going so well for Robert and suddenly he finds out that everything is collapsing in Italy. So he has to rush, leave his army, go back to Italy to put down those rebellions and save the Pope, his crucial ally. Now, luckily for him, he has a son who he can leave in charge of his army in Greece. So Robert's now out of the picture. He's gone off to put out some fires and his son, Bohemond, was left in charge. Now, the question at this point is, can his son show himself as capable a leader as his father? Well, that question doesn't have to linger for very long because Alexios is gathering more soldiers to try again to push out the Norman invaders. He's not ready to give up. So within a year, he's got another army put together and he moves against Bohemond near the city of Arta in central western Greece. The result is another defeat for the Byzantines. Soon this was repeated again at the nearby city of Ionia. Pardon the, uh, if you can hear the, the cars honking outside. Now, at this point, Bohemond is the master of Macedonia and of northern Greece. So now he moves against one of Byzantium's great fortresses, the city of Larissa in Greece. Now, this is a city you'll remember caused a lot of trouble for conquerors like Tsar Samuil. So now we're going to see if the Normans can take this great fortress. So Bohemond moves and he lays siege to Larissa. But of course, at this point, he's moved pretty far from the east. He's hundreds of kilometers away from the Adriatic Sea and the Norman supply lines. So this means his supply lines are getting long. And the problem is that his father still has a lot to deal with in Italy, and it's very expensive for him to put down those rebellions. And so not just supplies, but money 
payments for his soldiers are coming more and more rarely. It, of course, doesn't help that at this point, Alexios is promising lavish rewards to anyone who's willing to leave the Normans and come fight and work for him. So at this point, you know, the Normans have been dominating the battlefield, but they're getting hit pretty hardly in the purse strings. They are losing the money war to the Byzantines. Again, classic Byzantine tactic. If you can't win a war, just pay everyone and make your problems go away. We should all be so lucky, right? So the siege of Larissa is still going on. It's been about six months, but all these issues are really piling up and it becomes clear that some action needs to be taken. Now, Bohemond's best solution to solve all of his problems is that, well, get, he needs to get more money. That's going to really solve his problems. So he decides to return to Italy himself to gather up some more money so he can pay his army and pay them enough to fund the rest of a Norman conquest of the Balkans. So we're now just over a year into this campaign, and it's devolved from this triumphant landing of an enormous force with Robert at the helm to a much diminished force with increasingly worsening morale, angry over a lack of payment and supplies, laying siege to an enormous fortress deep into Greece with no end in sight. Byzantine tactics had done their work. And, of course, the Byzantines weren't done. There's still more gold, enough to ultimately pay most of the Norman commanders to switch side over the course of 1082 and 1083. At the same time, a Venetian fleet managed to recapture Corfu and Dyrrhachium. So, Byzantine control is returning to the Balkans. Those Normans are looking increasingly isolated, both from their own commanders, from their supply lines, from their bases deeper into the Balkans, everything. But still, the Normans are a determined lot. They're not about to let all their gains slip away quite so easily. So while all this has been going on, Robert Giscard has been ravaging his enemies in Italy. By 1084, both he and his son are ready for their revenge against Alexios. They return to the Balkans at the head of a fleet of 150 ships, and this time they defeat a Venetian fleet, and they retake Corfu and a nearby island called Kefalonia, and all this with the help of Ragusa, with the help of Dubrovnik. So it looks like the tide is turning again, right? The Giscard, Giscard and his son have finished their work in Italy. Now they can devote their full attention to the Balkans. But that same old enemy is back to fight the Normans. Disease, plague. It sweeps through their ranks, causing serious damage to their ability to continue fighting and forcing a sick Bohemond to return to Italy to get well and recover. The Norman campaign just grinds to a halt while the army is sitting on those Greek Ionian islands being sicker and sicker by the day. It took them a year. They sat there recovering for an entire year until they could get their strength back enough to continue the campaign. All this led up to July of 1085 when Robert Giscard himself finally succumbs to that illness and dies on that Greek island. Now, more things are happening because this triggers a succession crisis, which forces the entire Norman army to retreat back to Italy to take part in the fight over who is going to succeed Robert. The civil war that results is going to last for five years. And in the meantime, as you can imagine, the Byzantines re-exert full control over the Balkans, and essentially the region returns to the status quo. Now, at this moment, 
You might expect Alexios to seek revenge by attacking Ragusa or Duclia, the Serbs. You know, or these were both Norman allies. They had helped Robert out to one extent or another during his invasion. But there are more pressing matters that mean those will have to wait. So, you remember the Paulicians. You remember that heretical religious group who allied themselves with the Pechenegs? They took over the passes in the Balkan Mountains? Well, while all this was happening, their plans had been progressing. So while the emperor had been distracted with the Normans, soldiers in the Byzantine army who ascribed to the Paulician faith had been deserting throughout this campaign, deserting Alexius's army and kind of moving to fight with the Paulicians and the Pechenegs. So Alexius decided that taking them on was his most important bit of revenge. He had to tackle the enemies within before he tackled the enemies from without. Because also, to make matters worse for the Byzantines, the Bogomils, who you'll remember were a religious sect started by a Bulgarian shortly after Christianity came to Bulgaria, well, they also joined with the Paulicians and the Pechenegs to oppose Alexios and the Byzantines. So taken together, this meant it was really important at this moment for Alexios to put these religious upstarts and their, Pechen upstarts and their Pecheneg allies in their place. So, the fight begins with Alexios confiscating land and throwing these army deserters into prison. But as you can imagine, the newly emboldened alliance wasn't about to take this lying down. So led by their leader, Traulos, and with the support of many Bulgarians, they organized a rebellion in Filipopolis, modern Plovdiv, in 1085. Alexios sent a field army to put down that rebellion. Now, we don't have a lot of details about the first year of this war, but... You know, there's some kind of conflict, uh, something happens, we just really don't know how it goes. But our story picks up again in 1086, when Traulos was waiting for a Byzantine attack on his forces behind the walls of a fortress called Beliatoba, which guarded a pass through the Balkan mountains, connecting Thrace with lands to the north. The rebels held this fortress and had a huge number of soldiers there. However, against the advice of his more conservative advisors, a Byzantine commander who was opposing them decided to attack. And it didn't take long, but for him and his army to kind of figure out uh, what was going to happen, that why it's really not a good idea to attack an entrenched force in a mountain pass. Now, a Byzantine chronicler described the battle that happened as follows, quote, The Romans, the Byzantines, were vastly outnumbered, and the sight of the enemy filled them with dread. Nevertheless, they attacked. Many were slain, and the Byzantine general Branus was mortally wounded. The domestic of the Western force was fighting furiously and charging the Scythians with great violence. He crashed into an oak tree and died on the spot. After that, the rest of the army dispersed in all directions. End quote. Now, quick point there, the Scythians, this, were, this was what uh, many people at the time called the Pechenegs. And just in case you missed it there, it's a bit funny. The leader of the Byzantines was charging on his horse and ran into an oak tree and died. Just one of the funnier, sillier, uh, kind of important character deaths we've seen so far in the Bulgarian History Podcast. But getting back to the story, right away, another Byzantine army was raised and sent to keep the fight going. Now, this army did manage to win a victory against some Pechenig forces who were weighed down with plunder from a raid. You can imagine a bunch of horse tribes, they just stole a bunch of stuff, they're carrying it, they're not in great shape to fight. But 
that victory doesn't seem to have had much of an impact on the war, because the very next year in 1087, seeing an opportunity, the Pechenegs, who were led by their chieftain, a man named Tselgu, raided Thrace again, a really big raid this time. At their side was actually a large Hungarian force. This was proof that a deal the Pechenegs had made with their, the king of the Hungarians at this point, a man named Salomon, had kind of gone through. So now the Hungarians and the Pechenegs are fighting together to mount these large-scale raids into Thrace. Now the details are a bit hazy, but this force seemed to have been ambushed by the Byzantines in a mountain pass, and Tselgu, uh, Tseglu, sorry, was killed. And so yeah, the, the force had a successful raid, but as they're heading back in, they get ambushed in this mountain pass. Uh, and also around this time, Alexios, he's putting together his own plan. So while a bunch of Pechenik forces are busy raiding south of the Balkan mountains, he takes a force and secretly moves north to assault one of their main fortresses on the Danube at Dorostolon, which is the modern city of Silistra in Bulgaria. Now, unfortunately for him, he fails to take the city. But while he's slowly retreating back to Byzantine territory, he gets surrounded by more Pechenik forces and ultimately forced to surrender and sign a truce, which included a stipulation that he now has to pay the Pechenigs in order to not raid his territory. So it's a bit confusing, but essentially this war has had some back and forth, major Pechenik victories, major Byzantine victories, but ultimately the Byzantines get outsmarted by the Pechenigs and are forced to sign a humiliating surrender. Now, this treaty seems to have meant that the Byzantines would have to give up any hope of recovering the territory that the Pechenegs now control, which, as you'll remember, was once the heart of the first Bulgarian Empire, right? This is where Pliska and Velika Perslav used to be. You know, this used to be that core Bulgarian territory, and now it's not even Byzantine. Now it's controlled by the Pechenegs. Now, many of Alexios's advisors pressed him to work to secure the mountain passes and make them a new Byzantine frontier, because... If you'll remember from a few episodes ago, you know, when the Byzantines brought their, uh, their, their what do you call it, uh, territory, brought their border up to the Danube River, that may have looked great on maps and for propaganda, but the Danube is not a very well defend, kind of easily defended border. But the Balkan Mountains are an excellent border. They're much easier to defend. So while it's you know rough for Alexios that he loses this war, it's Another way, an opportunity for him to make a really, really secure frontier that's going to be much easier to defend against these increasing nomadic raids coming from around the Danube. But, you know, we've gotten to know Alexius a little bit here. He's still young, he's impetuous, and he does not like giving up. So it shouldn't be surprising that he does not listen to his advisors. He has no interest in permanently giving up this Byzantine territory. So, when the Pechenegs raid Thrace again in 1090, we're not really sure if this is because the Byzantines didn't pay or the Pechenegs just didn't care that they paid. This time it was different. This Pechenig raid did not go like the rest. They crossed into Thrace with 80,000 warriors. Now think about that. The, the battle we saw before in, uh, with uh, Robert Gascard, the Battle of Dyrrhachium, you know, that was like 30,000 Normans, uh, then 20,000 against around 20,000 Byzantines. You know, this is double the size of both armies from that battle. Just a massive force. And there were Hungarians assisting them like before. Um, but what's happening here? I mean, what is this force going to do? Are they going for Constantinople? Is it just a bigger raid than ever? What do the Pechenegs want? And who's going to come up behind them? 
are the Serbs going to keep rising? Are the Hungarians who are with them going to take some more territory? Is this an opportunity for the Bulgarians to rise up again? Well, not quite, at least at this moment, it seems like it. Because it's actually a Seljuk commander and a former ally of the Byzantines named Chakas, who's with the Pechenegs. He's proposed an alliance with them with the intention of taking Constantinople. So the deal here is that the Pechenegs are going to provide a fleet. The, or sorry, the Pechenegs are going to supply an army. The Seljuks are going to provide a fleet. And they're going to converge on Constantinople. So Alexios has to think quickly. You can imagine his armies are exhausted. They're demoralized. There have been so many years of constant warfare. He doesn't have the strength to meet 80,000 Pechenegs in the field. And normally, he could just hide behind the thick walls of Constantinople. But that Seljuk fleet is coming as well. And so the combination of those two could be a recipe for just an utter disaster for the Byzantines. So the question is, what is Alexios going to do? Well, you're going to have to wait about two weeks to find out. So episode 30 is going to tell us that, can I answer that question? What is Alexios going to do in response to this threat? So until next time. This episode was written by me, Eric Halsey, produced by Lance Nelson, with some research help from uh, Stanimir Bogdanov. Uh, and the theme music, as always, was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, and as always, please donate on Patreon. Uh, even just $1 makes a big difference, and you'll get that awesome uh, History of Bonsko miniseries. It's really interesting. It goes all the way into modern history. So if you'd like to hear me hear me talk a bit about modern history and not wait for a couple of years, then that's the place to do it. Check out Bulgaria Today. Uh, sorry, yeah, the Bulgarian uh, Now podcast. And yeah, just uh, you know where to find us. So in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>